I'm sitting now in the office of Rogan Taylor, who I first met in this house in Liverpool more than 30 years ago. Back then, Rogan was the leading voice of the newly founded Football Supporters Association. And in the three decades since, he's gone from being a leading fan campaigner to an an academic. He founded the Football Industries MBA at Liverpool University, which teaches people how to have a successful career within the football business. So uh, how do you reflect on that change in your position, Rogan, from being fan campaigner to teaching people how to flourish in a in an industry that you love, but in some cases have campaigned against as well. Yes, it's true, although I think the motivations have remained very much the same. The first, as you remember well, it was to gather supporters together into an active unit that could take part in the politics of the game, and that was uh, really what the FSA was engaged in. Now, I'm, in a sense, taking part of a team preparing people who want to work in the football business to work in it and making the networks and connections they need in order to get jobs in the business. And I'm trying to give them exactly the same education as I would have done in 1985, which is there's the source of all wealth in this game is in the relationship between those who watch and those who play. All the value in the game comes from a relationship and that's it those who watch and those who play nobody else adds any value at all it's a strange industry though isn't it 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 defies many of the traditional axioms of business it's a it's a business where i think you described it to me a little earlier as one where the apples fall upwards just explain that to me Yes, uh, I mean, part of what we do at the MBA uh, is, of course, people learn a great deal about the way ordinary businesses operate. And two-thirds of it is about how the way the weird and wonderful world of football operates. Now, the two are bleeding into each other quite a lot these days, a lot more than was the case even 20 years ago. But nonetheless, football is still on a planet of its own. The apples do fall upwards. Uh, The workers get paid more than the bosses. Rules are reversed in football. And those who love it most find it most painful. Because what drives the business of football is it sells suffering. Loving football is about pain. (laughs) And that's an intrinsic part of the experience. Because if you sit in a football ground or stand, if you're lucky enough, these days, and you look at what's happening amongst those around you, for 90% of the time, they're sitting or standing there going, oh, fuck. Goodness sake, can't he passable? How much did we pay for that? Oh my God, why is he playing that shape? It needs to be well out of that. It needs to, uh, why isn't he pushing? Uh, it's our uh, what a, you know, it's an endless complaint because unlike many other sports, perfection is extremely rare. You know, you go and watch a basketball game, there's like 200 goals. You know, you watch a cricket match, there's hundreds and hundreds of runs. You watch a football game, you're looking to see one. 
and quite a lot of us get none. And so this is a game where you choose to suffer, to take part. And everything about the way fans describe, I mean, the very word, you know, fan is clearly short for the word fanatic. But for a, I mean, this word emerged in 1880. This was late Victorian England. Fanatics were mad foreigners who, you know, sit in a cave in Afghanistan and scratch their backsides. An Englishman was never a fanatic, except maybe about collecting butterfly wings or whatever it might be. So it's a very un-English word. Like, look in Italy. You know, the word for fans that the Italian fans chose is tifosi. T-I-F-O-S-I. What does it mean? People with typhus, the typhosi. Fevered, crazy, heads going mad, and then you die, right? In Brazil, the word for football fan that the fans have chosen is torcedor. It comes from the verb to wring water out of washing. The English translation would be the mangled ones. And as football history illustrates very sadly, quite physically mangled on many, many occasions. So the words that those who watch choose to describe the experience involve conditions that no sane person would volunteer for. Who wants to be a fanatic? Who wants to typhus? No, I can manage without that, I think. Who wants to get mangled? Meet me at three o'clock. I'll take you. <laughs> you know, it's a very strange game. And the business around it is, you know, infiltrated by that weirdness. The masochism of supporters that you described, though, is that one of the reasons that you think fans have been so easy to exploit and abuse over the years? Because if we're treated badly, it's a shrug of the shoulders... That's what, we, that's what yeah. we expect. Absolutely. I mean, I think two things come together with fans. We're, people from outside are often surprised at how powerful the identity of very different kinds of human beings standing in the cop or wherever it might be back in the day or seated in those big... They're not very similar to each other and yet they appear to have a sense of identity which even makes them sort of appear to move orchestrally in some ways, to move together. Identity is formed in collective suffering much more powerfully than in collective joy and the peoples of the world who know who they really are are those who have suffered a great deal because that stamps identity to the very heart of human beings. And so football fans are abusable because their identification is so strong that they can survive years of queuing up outside in the rain for three hours to pay for the privilege of standing in two inches of piss on a Saturday afternoon. Now, how's that for a business model? You know, do you think Tesco's could go for that? No, that's planet football, isn't it? Yeah, although football has changed, hasn't it? And that vision of football, if you like, is a long way away from how the Premier League now would like to, to brand itself. But the gentrification of football. That was bought in the most acute pain and suffering. What changed football 
in the 1980s, as has always been the case, is the combination of new media developments, new methods of communication, particularly satellite TV, and, of course, Heysel and Hillsborough. Heysel gave birth to the Premier League because the direct result of Heysel was the morning after, on Thursday, the chairman of the so-called Big Five football clubs at the time all started meeting secretly and saying, what are we going to do now? We have just lost one-third of our annual income. On Tuesday evening, everything was fine. On Thursday morning, we've lost a third of our business. Because of the ban on English clubs from European club football. Exactly. And so the first thought was, how could we get together, break away and keep all the telly money, which is currently shared, not equally, but shared amongst the entire 92 clubs in the Football League TV deal. Let's cream off the top, keep it to ourselves and survive. And so, in a sense, Heysel gave you one part of the equation Hillsborough forced massive investment in stadia. The reconstruction following the Taylor report, following that terrible tragedy, required massive changes in grounds. So you got the physical structure to go with the new focus on premiership. And so if, you, if I was to write an equation for postmodern football, post-90s football. It's Heysel plus Hillsborough over satellite TV equals modern football. Now, nobody was in control of that. However, they may look back in their rosy presence at how clever they were. Actually, it was stuff happening that forced people into looking for ways in which they could corner more money. And out of that, and the technological changes... I mean, football changes. You know, when radio came in 1922 and the BBC was born, football was, became national. It was a northern game before that. Because at the same time, the pools companies were born, and instead of half a million people going to a football match... 15 or 20 million people are sitting in a kitchen at 5 o'clock. Da-dum, 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 da-dum. And here are the football results waiting to see that by 20 past 5, they might be a millionaire. That translates a Northern Midlands game, which is what it was, south of Birmingham. There wasn't much going down at the beginnings of football at all. That translates a Northern game into a national game. The combination of... Communication revolution plus events, dear boy. And bingo, we're off. The next one's television in 1950. Then satellites in the 60s. You want to know why Liverpool FC have got 39,000 Norwegian members of the Norwegian LFC Supporters Club? It's because just as they rose to the first division and got involved in European competition in 62 and 63, the first communication satellites are going up and the Norwegians are watching. You know, Manchester United became Manchester United when a terrible tragedy gave the world its knowledge of this club. I mean, does anybody know that 10 years before that, Another terrible tragedy, equally, if not more terrible, happened 
The entire Italian national team went down in an aeroplane in the Alps in 1948-1949. The entire national team was dead, along with bigwigs and all the various others that were in the plane. Ever heard of that, anybody? No. What's the difference between 48 and 58? 48's radio, 58's telly. And suddenly you can see the Manchester people grieving. You can see those survivors returning. You can see footage of where that disaster took place. And that stamps a club with a global mark. I mean, Busby was already creating a lot of interest, but that's the way it works. That's why I say these advances are very rarely born out of clever people thinking clever ideas. They're born out of terrible events, sufferings, mismanagements, which require new worlds to follow them. And you mentioned that football is a business, even in the early 90s, even when the Premier League starts, for all the talk of the business-like way in which football could be run, it was small time. It was. Arsenal were turning over less than a million pounds in 1990. I mean, these are small business. They're corner shops, and they've been corner shops for 100 years. Nobody expected to make any money in football, except the occasional renegade director who would have a couple of turnstiles that the taxman didn't know about and would collect. The ca- we all know the stories, but you couldn't really make any money owning a football club. Your local business might prosper a little bit off the back of it. People feel good about you. But actually, the odd thing about the church of football is people worship at the altar but they hate the bloody priests. People who work for football clubs are generally hated by those who watch them. And if you're working for a football club and you pick up the phone and unfortunately find a fan on the end of it, they usually go, what was going on on Saturday night? Me and my lad going down those steps at Melbourne. The doors were shut, you know. That's life, working in the temple. They worship the God, but they hate the monks. When you try and teach your, your MBA students then, and, and you try and make that connection between the importance of fans and the you know, very powerful business of football, how do you make that connection? It is by emphasising where the value is and what is being cashed in the football business is a relationship. It's between those who watch and those who play. That's the magic of football, that relationship. Now, those who play change all the time. Teams can change almost overnight. And so the one constant factor is the fans' relationship to whoever wears the shirt. It's that that has all the value that you can unpack because if you can't watch them Physically, you want to watch them on the telly. You can sell the telly to them. They want to read about it. You can sell the newspaper and the magazine. You can sell the radio subscription. You can sell the TV rights. And of course, because football is so sensitive, 
to communication revolutions. There's a new one coming where every single person in the world can watch every single football match on a piece of kit he's got in his pocket, right? That changes the values that the game can extract. Given this digital age that we've now arrived in, the fans who you represented through the Football Supporters Association back in the mid-80s, who I wrote about in Off the Ball, the fanzine at that time, we were, we argued, important then because we were the money of football. We aren't the money anymore. If you can watch a game through the device in your pocket, through your mobile phone, through an app, how insignificant now are we? Well, those who physically attend considerably less significant. There's no doubt about that. But those who watch are incredibly significant because now the audience is genuinely global and television companies, and probably fairly soon companies emerging out of Silicon Valley and elsewhere, will be paying unimaginable amounts of money to gain this conversation with two billion people across the world. And so it's still there, but it's in a much more diluted form simply because of the availability. Although every single football club does realise that if there's nobody in the stadium, the guy in Hong Kong may not be too keen to pay for his Sky subscription or its equivalent. The reality is, if nobody's watching it, it has no value. Without fans in the stadium, who wants to watch a game? Have you ever watched a game? One of those games where they had to play in an empty stadium. <laughs> you might as well just go out in the park and watch some lads kicking around because they might be pretty good footballers, but nobody cares because they're not there. And the game is about relationships. That's the value at its heart. So nobody cares about it. Why should I?